0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton and today we're going to talk to Diana Nemiroff about her history of the transformation of the National Gallery of Canada, one of the country's most important cultural institutions. Diana Nemiroff is a former Curator of Contemporary and Modern Art at the National Gallery of Canada and was the Director of the Carleton University Art Gallery. Over the course of her career, she's organized over 40 exhibitions of Canadian and international artists and has written extensively on contemporary and modern art adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa and Carleton University, Diana Nemiroff is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and received the Governor General's Award for her exceptional contribution to the visual and media arts in 2012. Today we're going to talk about her book, Women at the Helm, how Jean Sutherland Boggs Yan Shea and Shirley L. Thompson Changed the National Gallery of Canada. This book is published by McGill-Queens University Press.
1: You're welcome, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: First, let me say how much I really enjoyed reading this book. It's a Combination of cultural history mixed with portraits of leadership uh, and late 19th or 20th century feminism. The question that I have is one that hit me right from the beginning Was Women at the Helm a book that you intended to write from the moment you retired from the National Gallery of Art?
1: At first I thought I might write a history of the National Gallery but somebody else did that Douglas Ord ahead of me uh, and for the next several years I was busy at Carleton uh, being the director then somebody asked me about my retirement project and I thought back to Shirley Thompson I had worked under her for 10 years uh, I really admired her and so I thought about writing about her but then I I thought about sort of picking up my feminist roots and looking at all three uh, women directors up to that point, Jean uh, Jean Boggs, Yen and Shirley. Um, And finally, I thought it would be fun after years of writing catalogue essays and articles and art criticism and that kind of thing to try my hand at, you know, what I thought of as long form a book. (laughs) So there you are. That's where it comes from.
0: Well, as you know, the Champlain Society uh, sponsors this podcast and the Society itself is dedicated to the preservation and dissemination of documentary history in Canada. Uh, You did some very extensive primary research to reconstruct the history of the National Gallery of Canada from the 1960s until the end of the 20th century. Can you describe the documentary sources you relied upon to reconstruct this history as part of your research?
1: Yes, I I will. Although, first, I'll say that I also did a lot of interviews with people who knew my subjects. And some of the information they gave me led me to investigate further. Most of my research—I was lucky to be in Ottawa because most of my research took place at the National Gallery uh, in their archives— And uh, through the archives, I had uh, access to things like uh, minutes of the board, boards of trustees during the whole period, um, and a lot of other primary documentary material, which was really important. The gallery also has a vast documentation center, which consists mainly of newspaper clippings and other public documents, which are grouped together under various headings, which could be the names of exhibitions, Or people who've been associated with the gallery. So those two were very important to me. And then Shirley Thompson, who went on to be the uh, head of the Canada Council and then head of the uh, Cultural Property Review Board, Export Review Board, uh, decided to give her papers to uh, Library and Archives Canada. And uh, that was particularly interesting because she kept everything. She had a sense of historical moment. uh, And so I found amazing things like her performance reviews and her letters um, and notes that she kept from conversations she had with people. So it was uh, an amazing, amazing resource. It took me a long time to get through it.
0: Well, let's talk about the National Gallery as a institution. and Describe what came before Jean Sutherland Boggs when she took over as director in 1966. What did she take over? What was this thing?
1: It was a not very well-known, smallish gallery that was housed in temporary quarters. It had been founded in 1880 by the Marquess of Lorne, Princess Louise's husband and Governor General of Canada, at the same time as the Royal Canadian Academy of Arts. And its initial collection was built up, in fact, by uh, so-called diploma pictures, which the, uh, the newly appointed academicians deposited as the basis of the collection. It didn't have a permanent home. In fact, until 1988, past this time, when Jean Boggs took it over, uh, it had moved out of the Victoria Memorial Building, which it was sharing with uh, the National Museum, subsequently divided into Museum of Mayan and Museum of Nature. And it moved into the Lorne Building, which was a kind of consolation prize for... The building that was supposed to have been built from a competition in the 50s but never got built. Uh, and this was a Lauren Building was an office building in downtown Ottawa. Great location, uh, near all kinds of services, near the National Art Center, which uh opened later in 1969, but uh not meant to withstand the requirements of an art gallery. And then The gallery had also gone through a scandal when, under the previous director, uh, Charles Comfort, a painter, uh, it had accepted an exhibition of the Walter uh, Chrysler collection, and subsequently a number of works in that exhibition were shown to be fakes, in fact. So that was very internationally embarrassing.
0: Uh, Boggs turned that around. And so can you give us a quick biography of her and those aspects of her earlier life that directly influenced how she transformed the National Gallery.
1: Jean uh, was born to Canadian parents uh, whose families were based in um, southwestern Ontario, but uh, she was born in Peru. Her father was a geologist, um, and he was working down there for a petroleum company. Her mother had been a teacher until she married and had her children. Uh, Her parents were ambitious for her. Uh, Eventually, the family moved back to Canada. Jean went to the University of Toronto, where they had a fledgling fine art department. Uh, That was very important. She had uh, a number of very good teachers and uh, really quite a substantial uh, fine arts education. She then went to work for the painter and educator Arthur Lismer at the Art Association of Montreal, which later became the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. She did a bit of everything there. She met people, and she decided that she was going to go to Harvard uh, and take their famous museum course, which had, in fact, was a very influential course, in one of the first in museology. And it had... Um, seen a number of its graduates uh, posted two important uh, museums. She mostly taught, uh, she didn't have that much actual museum experience apart from two years as a curator at the Art Gallery of Toronto, which later became the Art Gallery of Ontario. That was in from 62 to 66. But I discovered when I was doing my research that she had actually applied uh, for the directorship of the National Gallery. Uh, I guess it was the competition when Comfort got the position. So she was clearly ambitious and clearly it really looks in hindsight like she was made to be a museum director. Although I think she was a successful university lecturer. You know, She was, she was very gifted.
0: So... Describe the world that she lived in after she became director, which is the Ottawa of the late 1960s. What was the state of visual culture in both Ottawa and the country at large at that time?
1: Apart from the major centres, Toronto, Montreal, and to a lesser extent, Vancouver, practically invisible. People will resent me for saying that, but... I'll speak specifically about Ottawa, which I knew at the time. Um, There really was nothing aside from the National Gallery. There was no municipal art gallery that came much later in the 80s. There was no artist-run centre that came in the 70s. There were hardly any commercial uh, galleries. Uh, So the National Gallery was really it. Um, And the thing is that the National Gallery had a national mandate. It wasn't necessarily intended to serve the local community. So, it had a great importance um, for the city, I think, because of there being so few options. But it was a, Ottawa was a civil service town, and I venture to say, uh, from my own experience, quite conservative.
0: Right. And so, to what extent did Expo '67 change or not change the National Gallery and the state of visual culture in Canada?
1: Well it was really the, uh, the country's centennial celebrations that changed that so Expo 67 sort of slotted into that but to address Expo 67 first, the National Gallery was involved with it in organizing the International Fine arts exhibition there uh, and actually Jean quite resented it because it took away key employees the, the staff of the gallery was very small at the time and uh, obviously it was senior employees for example, uh, the senior conservator who was responsible for the creation of what later became the first home of the Montreal Museum, uh, excuse me, the Musée d'Art Contemporain, having it built to proper standards for fine art. And it took away also one of the principal administrator curators who the two of them basically lived in Montreal during the preparations for the exhibition. But how did it change things? Let's look at the centennial celebrations. As part of that, obviously, there was a heightened sense of nationalism, Canada's growing up, Canada's taking its place on the international stage and so forth. Uh, So it was a period of opening and uh, the government uh, of the day uh, decided to initiate uh, a big campaign of infrastructure campaign, which is very rare for governments. They hate being caught building anything uh, that you know can be spend, spending tax built with taxpayers' money. But they did, they created a whole network of exhibition centers and so forth. So all of a sudden there was a real sort of ferment, let's say, going on. I imagine if I had been involved in it, wouldn't have seemed so. All of a sudden, I would have say it was building up to that. But it really appears that way in hindsight. Um, the Canadian art world just exploded. Um, and let's not forget also that this was a period when uh, the, you know, um, training programs for artists and for art historians were also being inaugurated, apart from the University of Toronto, which had started in the 30s. Um, there were programs f- for Canadian art history, one of which I attended at Concordia. These were all new Schools like uh, the Nova Scotia School of Art and Design was, uh, had new direction in Jerry Kennedy, an American expat painter and uh, conceptual artist. And he really shook things up and and looked for an international uh, input into Canadian culture. At the same time, you had Canadian nationalism expressed by artists like Greg Kernow, who was living in London, Ontario, um, and who made wonderful paintings of everyday life. So the 70s were a period of real effervescence, the late 70s in the Canadian art world.
0: Right, and you talk and and spend a fair amount of time uh, in the book, and I very much appreciate this as a former public servant, on issues of governance, structure, in terms of the country's policies and its national museums, and the profound changes that were made by the Trudeau government, that is, the Pierre Elliott Trudeau government, it seems to me, and certainly it's portrayed in the book, that some of these policies worked against the National Gallery. And certainly Boggs herself believed this to be the case. If this is accurate, why was this the case? And did it ultimately result in Boggs' resignation or were there other reasons for that?
1: To answer your last question first, yes, I do believe it was the direct reason that she resigned. But to go back, um, there were a lot of difficulties with the National Museum, which had a lot of internal problems. Um, And um, there were two reports commissioned by the Pearson government, actually, under two different ministers, the second one being Judy LaMarche, Uh, looking for a solution. And one of them uh, recommended that um, the national museums be grouped under a kind of umbrella organization, which would be responsible for the administration. That became the uh, National Museums of Canada, or as uh, its friends know it, uh, the corporation. And it was inspired by the Smithsonian, but The situation of the four national museums at the time, the National Gallery, uh, the National Museum of Man, National Museum of Nature, and the very new Museum of Science and Technology was extremely different. The National Gallery had been had been um, sending exhibitions of its collection across the country since the second decade of the 20th century. So it had a, a, a wide clientele that looked to it for expertise whereas the uh, other museums were primarily uh, research-oriented institutions, collecting and research-oriented institutions with very little public profile. So Jean was very uh, resentful of the impact on her, which was quite immediately. She lost her status as deputy minister, which meant she didn't. She no longer reported directly to the minister. That it was the Secretary of State at the time, um, and she imp- reported instead. Well, it was all. It was a very confusing structure because the National Museums Corporation had a Secretary General. He was the head, um, but the directors at first were equal with him that changed and various aspects of that legislation changed the second thing that made a difference and by the way that happened really it was initiated uh, uh, under under the pearson government you know it might have been it might have been trudeau's government when it actually came to life but all those steps were taken before him but where Trudeau had a huge impact was with the museum policy, which was uh, formulated by Gérard Pelletier, one of the Trudeau's three wise men. And um, it was very a very ambitious policy. And we have to remember that when it was formulated in probably the late 60s, early 70s, this was a period of expansion for Canada. But things quickly began to contract with recessions. But what it did was it extended the reach of the federal government across the country. Now, you you may be aware that culture, like health, is considered a provincial matter. We know how well that's working out. Uh, and it didn't work out that well for culture either. The uh, The federal government had ambitions to, it wanted to put money into it. So it found this corporation, which was a crown corporation, as a way of putting money into a infrastructure, but also mainly through to pro, into programming um, studies, all kinds of things, conservation, record keeping. The whole idea was to modernize, to grow and modernize the Canadian museum structure. Terrific when you've got the money. Apart from Jean's personal ambitions, the effect that it had on the national museums, the National Gallery in particular, was that it submerged its identity under the. Under the uh, National Museums Corporation identity, on the one hand. And it meant that the role of the National Gallery shifted. Instead of being the go to place for expertise, uh, as the regional museums in particular uh, grew, they became more demanding about the kinds of exhibitions they wanted. But at the same time, the National Gallery wasn't getting the increases in funding that it would have taken to provide those things. And in fact, my analysis shows that during the history of the National Museums Corporation the gallery and the other national museums grew at a much slower rate than non than other institutions such as the National Arts Center um, because the corporation became a sort of hungry mammoth. Uh, it, it, it hired like crazy its own cadre of staff and so forth and Toward the end, it was even talking about building itself a building when at least two of the National Museums were desperately in need of new housing, the National Gallery and the National Museum of Man, uh, both of whose buildings were practically collapsing under them. Um, so eventually the gallery gathered allies, people, people in the regional museums weren't so happy with the heavy federal hand that the, Muse- that the National Museums Corporation exercised on the grants that they were getting, you know, the, all the criteria that had to be met and so forth, and the, the pr- even programming criteria. And so that enabled the gallery to find allies. And eventually, there was a study done under uh, Moroni's conservatives. And Flora MacDonald, the Minister of the Day of Canadian Heritage, recommended that the National Museums Corporation be demolished, essentially. As it turned out, it was devolved, as they like to say, and a lot of the people, most of the people who worked there actually went into the public service, um, you know, and maintained their careers in the Department of Communications, uh, for example. A few of them went to the individual museums.
0: Yes, so can you describe... Yen Shea and her career following Boggs, uh, she became director at a very difficult time. But even taking this into consideration, maybe this is just my view, but it seems to me that her impact on the National Gallery was very slight compared to Boggs or Shea's successor, Shirley Thompson. Am I wrong about this, or do you think that Shea's efforts to expand? the National Gallery's focus beyond North America and Europe to other regions of the world was more permanent.
1: I partly agree with you. Uh, she was only there for four years, and it takes time to make change. I do, however, think that her acquisition of a major South Asian collection, the Hermannic collection, was very important. Uh, because she worked under such difficult circumstances, both politically, several changes of government, Um, And financially, uh, a period of recession, uh, one recession after another in the 70s. She was there from 77 to 81. Um, there was never any money for anything, really. Uh, she she would have liked to do some fundraising. She had quite an entrepreneurial spirit, in fact, but she was prevented from doing so by her masters at the NMC, um, who
0: um, the corporation.
1: Yes, the corporation who felt that it would intrude on the terrain of the of other Canadian museums who weren't getting federal funding. The whole federal funding thing was the issue. Some of the blame lies at Shu's feet as well. She was a scholar, um, a very well-respected scholar. She'd been the head of the department at, of Asian art at the uh, Royal Ontario Museum before she came to uh, the gallery. But her expertise really lay outside of the expertise of the curators, The curators in particular, not just them but mainly, were devastated at Jean's departure, felt that, you know, she had been forced to leave by uh, the bullies at the corporation, let's put it that way, Um, and so um, Yen had a very low-key rather, uh, you know, kind of scholarly approach. She felt, you know, let the scholars do the research and we won't interfere and whereas the staff was looking for uh, dynamic leadership, and they found a real gap. And Xu was politically naive. Uh, she didn't really succeed in making uh, alliances for herself. I don't know to what extent her ethnic origins played a role, but some of the anecdotal information I received from informants suggests to me that it could have been an issue in some areas. She went on to a successful career in academia at Hong Kong uh, University. So perhaps, as I write in the book, she's the wrong person at the wrong time, in the wrong place.
0: Right. And, you know, in contrast, Shirley Thompson's uh, timing as director was superb. Um, She ended up with a new building and the reestablishment of the National Gallery as its own crown corporation, can you tell us a little bit about her, her timing, including maybe a, just a very short biography of her? I found that part of this story very interesting as well, and, and how her background equipped her or more importantly, did not prepare her for her role as director.
1: Shirley came from small-town Ontario, like Jean, and they were virtual contemporaries because Shirley entered uh, the visual arts world much later than Jean. Her father um, was self-taught, but believed very strongly in education, encouraged reading in in his family. They sent all three of their children to university. I think that um, the background, even though the economic circumstances of the two families was different, um, I think the background was very similar. So Shirley, um, who was considered brilliant by her teachers, studied history at the University of Western Ontario, taught for a bit, and then decided she had to get out of the confining environment in which she found herself. She got a job as an au pair in Paris, and uh, she quickly went on to other things, uh, ending up at, at UNESCO. So. She had a background in what I call international cultural relations. She was a big picture person. She was also partly because of her husband, who was a political scientist. She married late in her 30s. They didn't have children uh, and they divorced when Shirley was getting her PhD. But he was uh, very closely connected to the Liberal Party. And uh, I speculate that... There were lots of dinner parties at the Thompson's household where she met influential people. And in fact, it was Gérard Pelletier, uh, the crafter of the museum policy, who phoned her one evening and asked her to apply for the position of director of the National Gallery. Now, she had directed a museum. She directed the the McCord Museum for three years. And she had uh, worked on an, uh, an exhibition of European art um, by a French painter, uh, 17th century, her area, uh, at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. But her background was really in um, in uh, administration, and that's why she was chosen, because I think that MacDonald and uh, her predecessor, Mar- Marcel Mass really felt that strong leadership was going to be needed to bridged that transition. They knew the gallery was going to become autonomous. It took quite a while to get the legislation through. It only came through in 1990, but the National Gallery was going to be an, an independent crown corporation, and therefore it needed somebody who was going to be able to take those reins and who would be competent as an administrator. So that was Shirley as she appeared when she entered the National Gallery what we didn't know was Shirley loved museums. I can't think of any exhibition, any lecture um, that she didn't go to personally, which is you know, saying a lot. She was a consummate networker. Uh, she quickly knew everybody. Unlike the other two, Shirley was an extrovert. Uh, she loved people. She had a great sense of humor. She was smart. And above all, she was an extraordinarily principled woman, as we all discovered. So at the beginning, we curators were maybe a little skeptical about her, who was this woman, didn't really know her and all that. But she grew on us for two reasons. She believed in artistic freedom, but she also believed in curatorial freedom. Uh, she was able to defend us. She believed deeply in research and, and in education. So she had both sides covered in a way. She was devoted to the gallery's public and, and to the gallery as an instrument of public education. And on the other hand, she believed in, sc- in scholarly research. So it was a golden age.
0: Well, that's for sure. And part of the golden age is uh, the new building, And uh, you spend considerable time in the book on the National Gallery's terrible physical infrastructure before it moved into what I would call a magnificent building in 1988. I was just there recently, and it struck me again what a magnificent building that truly is. Um, Can you tell us the difference this new building made, the National Gallery?
1: it it made every kind of difference because, first of all, it became a a public landmark, um, an iconic landmark for Ottawa. It performed the cultural bridge that Pierre Trudeau had so much wanted between uh, to link Quebec to the rest of the country. The Museum of Civilization was on the other side of the river, and here was this I think of it as a palace uh, on this side of the river with its echoes of the architecture of the, of the uh, parliamentary library, for example, with its great hall tower. So it was highly, highly visible. And there had been a hole in the ground for quite a long time because that started in 84, and it, it was only opened in 88. So that was very important. It doubled its space. Um, It had um, first-class offices. I remember when Prince Charles came to visit the National Gallery and he asked uh, us employees, you know, what what were our offices like? You know, were we down in some subterranean? (laughs) No, we said, no, we have have the best offices in in Canada. We look out on the Ottawa River and we see the sunset every night. But one of the more concretely in terms of the mandate of the gallery, for the first time, The National Gallery, which has the most important collection of Canadian art in the country, was able to lay out its its collection in a chronological order that traced Canadian art, and this has been revised a couple of times since then, but traced Canadian art from its early days up through the present. So it's like uh, an open history book. For anyone who's interested, it's really very remarkable. And I found when I took contemporary artists through those galleries, they were almost more in awe of those Canadian galleries with the story that they told than they were of the contemporary galleries, much to my...
0: Disappointment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had big, wonderful galleries as well. The, the thing that we really got was we got so much space so we could show so much more of the collection. Uh, we also got a lot more attention. And that meant that some of the more high profile and controversial acquisitions like Voice of Fire also got a great deal of attention, not only from the press and the public, but from Parliament and that's where Shirley really came into her own, um, if you like, as a as a defender of not only um, artistic freedom, but in, front, in Parliament the arm's length principle, which was very, very important. You know, in the Act that created the National Gallery, it says that the government will not intrude on decisions that are made about artistic activities. So that basically allowed the gallery to um, make its own, I would say, informed decisions about what to show uh, and how to show it, which is a very important principle. And because of that, all the galleries across Canada and the provinces um, and in municipalities gained through the example of Shirley and the National Gallery. So I think it's made a huge difference. Of course, internationally, hey, all of a sudden, here's a grand building, not an old office building, and they can see, you know, people who come from abroad, tourists or or critics can see for themselves something about, you know, the importance of the collection as well.
0: Well, truly a landmark here in Ottawa. But you talk about the turnstile culture of the National Gallery, a common trend in the museum world more generally, Uh, that emerged in the latter part of the last century. Is this still a part of the culture of the National Gallery? And are we going to move away from this turnstile culture? Or will it be further entrenched? Or what other changes do, do you foresee?
1: So what I would say first of all is the expression uh, the age of the turnstile was crafted by Bill Withrow who was the director of the Art Gallery of Ontario and he used it in a report that was prepared for the National Gallery and its incoming director. Essentially what uh, he argued correctly I believe is that um, whereas the previous era had been the era of the collection we were now entering the era of the public, uh, the audience and That, of course, was always implicit in the museum's role as an educational, public educational institution. But it also went along with the fact that all of this was getting very expensive for governments. And in Europe, everything is completely funded, to my knowledge. Um, And in the U.S., quite the opposite. Almost all of it is privately funded. Canada needed to embrace a kind of hybrid model, this famous public-private partnership, although I don't mean it in the strictly commercial terms that that suggests. But what I'm saying is that it, it was not possible for the federal government to fully fund all its national museums. They needed to do fundraising. So that thing that had always been denied them or discouraged became encouraged. And what that means is that you've got, you're not only looking to corporations for funding, and the initial exhibition of um, of Degas at the National Gallery had a commercial sponsor. I think it was United Technologies. It was one of the first, not the very first. In any case, it means that in the case of Ottawa, you rely very heavily on the summer tourist audience, which is when you get the greatest numbers. And that means trying to do exhibitions in the summertime when most tourists visit that are popular as well as scholarly so that would suggest based on subjects of a popular appeal but more, more often like the exhibition of this summer Rembrandt, um, exhibitions that have name recognition for you know the the general public. And I do think that, that is going to continue. And the way that um, Shirley and subsequent directors have balanced it is in scheduling my exhibitions <laughs> for the wintertime. <laughs> that is to say, contemporary exhibitions uh, with a smaller public will not be put on in the summertime when you really want the largest possible audiences. And I do think that, that is continuing today. Obviously, there are other kinds of changes uh, today, for example, we're in the midst of a, a tremendously important period of reconciliation uh, with Indigenous people on all levels, political, social, and cultural, and that has been fully embraced uh, by the the National Gallery that actually began uh, before Shirley, but when I was a curator, uh, so I've seen it grow. And it's been enlarged also to recognize the um Well, actually, something that Sho saw, you know, the necessity of reflecting to Canadians their own faces, uh, their own diversity. uh, And you do that through appealing with subjects and and artists to um, Canadians' own sense of identity and their personal identity, which means you'll have exhibitions by Black artists, you'll have exhibitions by uh, Asian artists. And so forth. In other words, you'll have exhibitions by women artists, Uh, the formerly mainly male, all white roster of important artists is being changed. And you even see that with the current Rembrandt exhibition where they've pulled in. Uh, an indigenous aspect by identifying the period in which Rembrandt worked as a period of the height of the Dutch slave trade and, uh, and international trade. So this is a phenomenon that is way bigger than a national gallery. This is happening across the museum world. So Using the word turnstile could have negative connotations to people who hold lofty ideas about the nature of art, but art is always reflecting the society that in which it is produced. And so exhibitions, I think, are the most popular when they uh, relate in some tangible way to the issues that people are already thinking about.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Diana. It was a real pleasure. You're welcome. My guest today was Diana Nemiroff. She is the author of Women at the Helm, How Jean Sutherland Boggs, Yen Shea, and Shirley Thompson changed the National Gallery of Canada, published by McGill-Queens University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work very hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, McGill-Queens University Press, UBC Press, the University of Ottawa Press, and the University of Regina Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on August 31st, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.